0: A very familiar and wonderful, rich psalm. Before we read that or I read that to you, I'd like us to say together what's in your bulletin, Westminster Larger Catechism 1. We'll be focusing on that as well as Psalm 73, Westminster Larger Catechism 1. There you have the question. I'll put it to you. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. And then Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily they threaten oppression they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them and they say how can God know is there knowledge in the most high behold these are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches all in vain have I kept my heart clean And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again as we come before this, your word and as we consider the catechism says... We, clear, we pray we would be clear by Your Spirit on the purpose of life and that we may be living so as to glorify You optimally and to enjoy You fully here and hereafter. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have confessions and catechisms because we seek unity and discipleship the ecumenical creeds we said the Nicene a moment ago the apostles this morning the Athanasian creeds those creeds and the reformed confessions and of course what you have had for so many years as part of the CRC is the three forms of unity This is what saying the same thing together creates and fosters. And so these creeds and confessions set forth and summarize the leading doctrines of Scripture. And they promote discipleship, particularly serving as teaching devices, especially the catechisms. They're devices to teach us. Well, B.B. Warfield, in Characteristic Understatement, says, in the late history of the Westminster formularies, the larger catechism has taken a somewhat secondary place. Now, you all haven't lived with these Westminster standards as long as some others of us have, but I can assure you the larger catechism is something of the ugly stepchild of the Reformation, It has a very secondary place in many people's thoughts and in their usage, and I would encourage a greater use. George Gillespie saw this as an advance, the larger, as an advance on the shorter, arguing that the larger was for those of understanding, as he put it. Philip Schaff speculated uh, that, with the Assembly, the Westminster Assembly's great respect stated right off the bat, Uh, ...in their calling documents, their great respect for the Synod of Dort... ...that the Westminster Larger Catechism was for public exposition in the pulpit... ...in the same way that Dort said the Heidelberg was to be... ...and divided it into 52 Lord's Days. There's no clear evidence for this, however. T.F. Torrance may have been closer. He said the Larger Catechism was designed chiefly as a directory for ministers... ...in their teaching of the Reformed faith Sunday by Sunday. And that's how I somewhat view it... ...and that's how I seek to use it. And tonight I seek to teach you as God's people... ...this little aspect as it begins here of the Reformed faith. There are 196 questions in this. So there's plenty of room to learn. Well, the larger catechism, as we've seen... ...begins with a question about our purpose... Why are we here in this world? That, that's, when that question is asked, which may sound strange to us in our current day, what is the chief and highest end of man? We could put it in a way that everybody would understand it by just saying something like, what is our purpose? Why are we here in this world? And the answer is we are here first of all for God. We're here first of all for God. We're here to glorify Him to do so is our chief and highest end, purpose, goal. And secondly, we're here we're here for us. We're here fully to enjoy him forever. Now, our world only supposes or stresses that we're here to enjoy ourselves, but we're here to enjoy him. We're here to enjoy Him, but we only get to that second purpose through the first. We only will enjoy Him if we consciously seek to glorify Him. But our God is interested in both. He wants us, sometimes we get a little bit super spiritual. We reform people, we Calvinists. Oh, we're here to glorify God. There's no place for enjoying in it. Well, that's not what this says. He wants us to glorify Him... ...and to enjoy Him. He said it. You say, well, the catechism said it... ...but the catechism is summarizing Scripture. And so, tonight... ...I'd like us to think about this... ...in terms of Psalm 73... ...because what I just said... ...that we're here to glorify God... ...and to enjoy Him... ...is not obvious from the world... ...in which we live, oftentimes. And Psalm 73 addresses this reality... So we're going to think of two things here. First of all, dire circumstances often obscure our chief and highest end. Dire circumstances often obscure our chief and highest end. And secondly, proper perspective restores our side of it. A proper perspective Restores our sight of it. So we begin by saying that dire circumstances, difficulties of every sort, often hide from us what is our chief and highest end. God is good. Psalm 73 begins with that, doesn't it? God is good to Israel. But that's sometimes difficult to discern. It sometimes is difficult to discern, especially as we fail to be pure in heart. If we're double-minded to the degree that we're double-minded... ...to the degree that we're idolatrous. Notice what it says here. God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. So we must be pure in heart to properly see this, understand this. It can be difficult to discern God's goodness and wisdom... ...by looking at the world... ...because, verse 3 now complicates it... ...especially for us... ...because the wicked appear to prosper. The wicked appear to prosper especially before Christ comes. Now, we talked this morning about the significance of understanding and situating ourselves in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We saw that the Old Testament was partial and provisional. The New Testament gives us this complete picture. And so this is being said in Old Testament terms. And before Christ comes, before he comes and incarnates goodness and wisdom as we never saw it before before our eyes, incarnated. And when Israel was among the nations, as she is here, she's among the nations and is the only recipient of special revelation. She's the only one to whom God is giving this prophetic word. And she's often hard-pressed being among the nations. Let me say this, perhaps in our post-Christian era... ...where few believe God's word... ...and we're becoming increasingly hard-pressed... ...this might have even more play... ...for us than it did for our fathers... ...our grandfathers... ...and those who came before... ...to say, yes, God is good... ...but the wicked appear to be prospering. And so the, the conundrum, the difficulty, the puzzle is... ...if God is good, he's just... And if he's just why are all these unrighteous people, these wicked people doing so well? Why are they prospering? We witness this in public figures and in wicked neighbors, colleagues, perhaps even family. We see this prospering. We suffer often and as God's people and they, the wicked appear to be, the text says, fat and happy, living on easy street, prospering in their wickedness. The wicked openly defy God and even boast openly that they're getting away with it, verses 11 and 12. And the righteous stumble because of the apparent prosperity of the wicked, as verse 2 says. Making righteousness appear not to pay, verse 13 says. In contrast... ...to the wicked, in contrast to the unbelieving, we are rebuked and stricken. We might say, well, they're having it easy. We're rebuked and stricken. You may be suffering even this night greatly in body, soul, your situation of life... ...with respect to job, money, home, relationships... ...suffering injustices at the hands of others... Think of this just as we pause here to say. Indeed, the one who came to redeem us was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of his people. He was stricken. So before we jump on the bandwagon too quickly of saying, yes, those wicked out there prosper at our expense, we have to remember One came who paid for all of your and my wickedness. We're not guiltless, my dear friends. We have wickedness. And that needs to be taken care of. And Jesus, thanks be to God, has done so. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. He who was holy, harmless... Undefiled and separate from sinners, he suffered an unparalleled agony all for our salvation, taking God's wrath for us. It's easy to forget when you're just living your life and to feel very righteous over against people that you see outside of the church. People you see in the world living in the kind of wickedness they're living in. But we're only here by the grace of God, right? We're only here because of that. Can it really be that we're meant to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? It often doesn't look or feel like it. As we're back to the thrust of the text. You might say, well, the wicked don't glorify God at all. Well, it is true... Let's think about this. It is true that the wicked don't love God. They don't keep His commandments. That's part of what marks them as wicked. And that is how we glorify God. We'll see as we go on even more that we glorify God by loving Him and keeping His commandments. We express our gratitude to Him and our thanks for that grace that I spoke of just a moment ago. Children, think about it this way. Does it glorify God? Sometimes I'm sure your parents say this to you. Does it glorify your God? Does it glorify God for you to hit your sister? Does it glorify you God for you to take something that's not yours? And the answer to that, a parent when saying to the child, are you glorifying God? Sally, Billy, is this glorifying to God? This sin you're committing? No. We all know about that then. We all know. Even children know about the talk. That doesn't glorify God. You're not obeying God. You're not doing what He wants. Yet verse 17 says that we can discern the end of the wicked. In other words, wickedness is not going to triumph. The psalm makes it clear Verses 18 to 20 speak of sudden destruction in the midst of apparently living the good life. It almost depicts the wicked who thinks they're getting away with it, going along just in all of their wickedness, and then they fall into hell. God brings judgment. In a moment, they're dead and in hell. So we could say this, and we need, to, we need to be clear about how I'm saying this. All glorifies God in some sense, even the death of the wicked. Verse 27 says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The wicked glorify God not in the same way the righteous do. Let's be clear here. Romans 9 makes this very clear. If you go to Romans 9, and I trust you're familiar with Romans 9. Romans 9 says that the wicked glorify the wrath and the justice of God. He raised Pharaoh up, it says, for a purpose. And if you truly understand who God is... There's a sense in which nothing could take away from his glory. It isn't true that the wicked are ruining everything for him. They're wrecking his plan and they're robbing him of all glory. Those who will not repent ultimately will glorify his wrath and justice. You say, that's a hard doctrine. I agree. It's a, it's a terrifying doctrine to use the kind of language Calvin did. But we need to be clear about this. All glorify God one way or another ultimately, but only those who seek to glorify Him enjoy Him. Only those who seek to glorify God, only those who want to follow Him, who do follow Him, who seek to obey His commandments, only they will enjoy Him forever. So everyone will glorify Him in some sense. The... Wicked will glorify His wrath and justice, Romans 9. The elect, His own, will glorify His mercy, His grace. Again, Romans 9 makes this very clear. Saved and lost, ultimately all glorify Him, but only the saved... Enjoy him fully and forever. This is a sobering thought. So it's not even as if, well, the wicked finally have their way. A lot of wicked people think that. I'll show God. At the last, I still will be in rebellion. Well, it actually says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And a wicked person might say, well, I still in my heart... ...will retain my integrity. Oh, there's a lot of talk of that. There's a lot of talk of that in poetry... ...of wickedness railing against God. But ultimately... ...ultimately... ...God will be glorified. He will be glorified... ...one way or the other. But only those who want to glorify Him... ...only those who bow the knee... ...while it is the day of grace will know what it means fully to enjoy Him forever. We fail in this many ways. Those of us who are His. Uh, verse 26 says, My heart and my flesh may fail. So it's, you say, I don't know. You're saying this depends on us. No, I never said that for a second. I said earlier it's all of grace. And I repeat that. Look at verse 26. My flesh and heart may fail... But God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. God intends for me, 1 Corinthians 10 31... You know this. He intends this for you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do... ...to do all things to His glory. This psalm, particularly the last verses 24 to 28 there. These last verses and the high priestly prayer in the end of John 17 that you heard the pastor read, and many other places in God's Word. Those places make it clear that I do and I am to do all things to and for His glory, and in that to enjoy Him who is my portion forever. I'm to seek to do everything to His glory, and to enjoy Him then who is my portion forever. But I repeat what I said at the head of this. Dire circumstances often can cause us to lose sight of this. Difficulties, right, cause us to lose sight of this. And this brings us to the second point. It's a proper perspective that restores our sight of this. So we can be walking, we can be cast down like the psalmist... ...and saying, the wicked are prospering, look at the world... What's the purpose of life? I don't know. It looks like it's to end with the most toys and you win. But we know that's not the truth. We know that the person who ends with the most toys doesn't win. In fact, these wicked sort who remain in their wickedness fall right into hell. To the degree you think that. To the degree that you're thinking What good does it do to be a Christian? That's part of what's going on here. What good does it do? You need to reorient your thinking. You need to stop thinking that way. You need to repent. Repent means to have a change of mind. And so that's our our second point. You need this change of mind that restores your sight truly. You see, and where do we get this? We, gain, we regain proper perspective only when we come to Christ. That's what verse 17 says. You see, he's at the end of his rope in verse 16. He says at the end of 16, it's all wearisome. I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of this life in which everything looks like it's going awry and wickedness is just having a field day. And verse 17 says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. You might say, preacher, why do you say until I come to Christ. Because we saw this morning, I read to you from Westminster Confession of Faith five that all of this stuff in the Old Testament, the Paschal Lamb, the sacrificial system as a whole, the ceremonial law, the tabernacle, and the temple, all, this is the word that's used, it's kind of a big word, foresignified showed forth, put a spotlight on Christ to come. And so unless and until you come to Christ once again, you say, well, I've come to Christ. But you come again and again. You begin coming to Christ. You may, some people even know, many people don't know, particularly brought up in the kinds of churches we're in, when they begin to trust Christ, they... They can't remember not ever trusting him. But you must always come to him. You come to him as the word is preached. You come to him at the table. You particularly come to him in public worship. This is the language the Westminster uses. In public worship, that's what we're doing here. In private worship, that's the way it speaks about family worship. Which is when you read the Bible and pray and sing in your families after meal or at some other time. And then it speaks of secret worship, where day by day you pick up God's Word, this Word that gives light. You pick up this Word and you seek Him in prayer. You come before Him. You live, Coram Deo, you live in His presence. You pray without ceasing, which means to live in the spirit of prayer and dependence upon the Lord. So to come to the sanctuary means to come to Christ. And as we say, we come to Him chiefly through the means of grace. And the means of grace are appointed and are central in our public worship. So public worship is so very important. But this is just the beginning. It's not the end. This should be supported by you and your families as you read God's Word. As you talk about. The sermon. As you talk about what did we hear Sunday. It was one of our practices when everyone was home at the dinner table, Sunday dinner. We would talk about what did you hear in this morning's sermon. Whether I was preaching or someone else was preaching. What were the themes? What were the points? What did the preacher tell us? What did you learn in your Sunday school class, in your catechism class? We're talking about these things all the time. So in the family, we're taking what's going on in public worship and talking about it. You said, I thought we're just supposed to mumble the scripture and mumble a prayer, and that's family worship. You can do a bit more than that. You can talk about what's going on. In the church, and what's going on in the world, how to understand, to have a God's eye perspective, so to speak, to think his thoughts after him, to have the the perspective of the word on what's going on, so that your children don't think that the wicked prospering is the way it's supposed to be. They need to be taught. You see, the psalmist says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I came to Christ, went to Him again, my thinking was muddled. It was confused. As it often becomes, doesn't it, in the workaday world. When we're not centered on the Lord in our thoughts, we're far away from public worship. It's easy to sit in a comparative way, it's easy to sit in public worship and to say those great symbols of the Christian faith, to say the Apostles' Creed, to say the Nicene Creed. But when you're in your neighborhood, maybe even among your broader family, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're with friends who may not be confessing those things, then it's not so easy. And you may feel sort of squeezed, and you may feel like, what's going on here? Well, you're there to bring a witness. You're there to bring this testimony of these things are true. And you say, but it's not so easy. Well, I understand it's not so easy. But what you all need to remember, young people, you need to remember this. Don't be afraid to speak for Christ. Because at the last day, your friend or whoever wants you to do something bad, the wicked who wants you to go along with them and they're prospering, they're not going to be sitting on the judgment throne. Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on the judgment throne. So when you're with people who you're, making, you're feeling like, oh, I'm nervous. I'm, you shouldn't be behind the eight ball here. At the last day, they're not on the judgment throne. Christ is. You need to live your life in the light of that. I answer to Him. I don't answer to unbelief. I don't answer to the wicked. I answer to Him who is on the throne. As we say, it's especially in public worship. It's especially in public worship that we come to Christ... ...which means coming here, coming together over the word, coming to him in prayer. This is where we see the destruction, the end of unbelief... ...that otherwise seems to go great guns. It's just that we don't have the proper perspective. Don't you know know this about the proper perspective? Can't you look at your life... At any moment, at any given moment, can't you look at your life not through the lens of faith but through unbelief and despair and just say, all is lost. This is a disaster. This is terrible. Because nothing ever goes entirely as you want it to go. In fact, things sometimes go quite not just entirely as you want it. They go very, very different than you would ever choose. You need to learn to look at your life. What this is about is you need to learn to look at your life through the eyes of faith. That's what we're talking about when we say a proper perspective. Dire circumstances, if just bad things are happening, if you don't bring faith to that, if you look at the bad things and go, oh, all is lost. Well, from a fleshly perspective, all is lost. All always is lost. But from a faith perspective, faith sees things as they really are. And even the most difficult of things are in His hands. And you're in His hands. And He loves you with a love that will never let you go. And say, well, I don't feel that sometimes. Well, I don't either. I understand that. But you see, I'm talking about faith, not simply feelings. You need to learn to see your feelings, your emotions through faith. Not simply whatever you feel, that's reality. You say, is not what I most deeply feel what's true? No, because a madman, think about it, a madman thinks all these things are really true. They're not true at all. They're nowhere close to being true. No, this defines truth. You heard the preacher say it from John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. This defines truth, not what you most deeply feel. There are people in courts of law up and down the land because they've committed acts about which they very deeply feel. The law doesn't say, well, did you deeply despise this person when you murdered them? Yes, Your Honor, case closed, go away. That's fine then. That doesn't happen. Thanks be... (laughs) You might say, well, are we going there? I don't know. We we, we are losing law because we're basing everything on... Some of you were there. Expressive individualism, let's just say that. If you don't know what that means, ask the pastor. And he'll tell you all about it. So our worship, public, private, and secret... You see, it's only in communion with the living God that we gain proper perspective, that we bring faith to bear. Not only do we lack perspective when we're out of communion. You say, what do you mean out of communion? Everybody here knows what it means to be out of communion with God. You know what it means. You're walking out of the way. You're not loving God. You're not loving your neighbor. You're just self-centered. You're doing your own thing. You need to come back You know things aren't right. You need to to make it right. You need to come to Him. You need to confess your sin. He's more ready to forgive you your sin than you are to come and confess it. Did you know that? So come. Come and confess it. When we're out of communion, we're not glorifying Him and we're not enjoying Him. The, the, The hymn writer, you're familiar with some of Newton's hymns, Amazing Grace... Everybody knows that one, but he wrote a lot. And he wrote this fascinating one. How tasteless and tedious the hours. Maybe you remember this. It's an old hymn. How tasteless and tedious the hours when Jesus no longer I see. It's someone out of... It's a believer out of communion and fellowship with God. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers... ...have lost all their sweetness to me. You know what that's about? And so when you're, when you're out of sorts... ...and you know how it is just to, put, to use that phrase... ...when you're out of sorts... ...nothing pleases you. you, you don't get, and when you're in that good way... ...you can enjoy things. <laughs> you can delight in things. Whether it's just the ordinary things of life... Food and drink, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you, you know, certain restaurant critics, you, you can tell, or as, as I've had people come to my office, as we've had a number of students from, from various places, and I remember a, a particular student coming to my office um, from a faraway place and saying, Professor Strange, somebody was talking about how how terrible this was and what a challenge this was for their life. He said, oh, that's such a... That's such a first world problem, professor. Where I come from, people would like to have that as the problem. (laughs) We don't have enough to eat. We don't have enough to to get by to live our lives. Uh, You know, and this person is so... We understand it's the situation we're in, right? But we get so caught up in our critics... We become critics and you can, you know, you read certain critics and you're like, they, they went to this very fine restaurant and they're criticizing this, that, and the other. And I understand their, their role, I get that. But it's like, well, well, I'd have liked to have gone there and had to pay nothing to eat there. And I, I probably would have enjoyed it. <laughs> you know. If you're fellowshipping with God, prison will not quench your praise. And if you're not the best things of earth will hold no true joy for you. It's in worship, in all of life, whether it's here in public worship, in family devotions, at a ball game where you're calling on the name of the Lord in your heart, not for your team to win, but for His glory. It's in all of these places when we rightly commune with god and public worship is the centerpiece of it that we refocus public worship is not the end but it's or the only place of our refocus but we could say it's the beginning of it again in a new week you begin a week refocusing to be fostered and carried on in the week by all of our acts of private and secret devotion We're to seek consciously and purposefully in all of life to glorify God. When we're not in communion, when you're strangers to Christ and his worship, we're like brute beasts. That's what the psalmist says. 21 and 22. When you're acting in the flesh, when you're self-centered, I mean, do you not catch yourself? You're like, how could I have thought that? How could I have said that to my colleague? How could I have done this act in driving? Some of us, you know, there are different areas of challenge. I find driving a challenge to be a Christian and to keep focused on the Christian and, and, and not to say things dishonoring to other people. Even in my head, you say, well, I didn't hear you say anything. But if I said it in my head, we can't be satisfied with this. We want through and through to be serving the Lord. Verses 21 and 22 speak about the brute beast. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant like a beast. We would be betrayers of the rising generation to give voice to this. And I think that it's almost like what scares part of what scares the psalmist back. He says in verse 15, If I had said this to the rising generation, what I've just been saying, I would have betrayed them but I didn't know how to understand it until I went into the sanctuary, until I came to Christ, until I came to hear about Christ in public worship, as I took the Bible, as I read it. Rightly understood, though we may feel far from glorifying and enjoying God, as verse 23 says, I am continually with you Nevertheless, you hold my right hand. This is true. Don't you have the sense when you come back to God that he never went anywhere? You may have gone here and there. He never went anywhere. You come back to him. God is always with us, holding our right hand. Are you feeling low, disconnected, far from God? Verse 25 He's the one that you always and unfailingly have. Whatever else you may not have. Whatever else you may not have, you have Him. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Let me tell you, when you're truly able to say from a heart that communes with God, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you... You're glorifying God and you're enjoying God. And you're enjoying Him more than the richest person ever could think about it. Because they don't truly enjoy Him. Only those who are His really enjoy Him. You have a Father who's loved you in Christ. And who with Christ by the Holy Spirit abides within in you. And you need to come... ...to confess the end of verse 25... ...as we just read it. This is the secret of enjoying Him. There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Pray, Lord, make this mine. Pray that. Because it's not just going to be yours in the flesh. It's not going to just happen, so to speak. Sanctification is something we have a part in. We are to strive. We are, you say, I thought you said it was all of grace. It is all of grace. But we're not passive. We don't just sit there. We strive after this. As you strive and come to know the secret of enjoying Him. And the more you glorify Him, the more you will enjoy Him and vice versa. Why are we here? To start now a life that will get, only get better and never end. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this life that you have called us to, to glorify you now and always, and in doing so, and only in doing so, that seeking consciously to do so, we enjoy you. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to say, Father, from the depths of our renewed hearts, there is nothing on earth that I desire. Besides you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And as we live there as we abide there and walk there, there is blessing now and evermore in Jesus name. Amen. Well let's